from the snowed-in studios of Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, it is time for another ethical episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. Is it acceptable to use fallen leaves for garden mulch and compost making? Or should nature's gifts be left where they lie or where they lay or eh, where they fall down, okay? I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and on today's You Bet Your Garden, we'll take a close look at the ethics of fall leaves. Otherwise, it's a fabulous phone call show, cats and kittens. Yeah, we're going to try and take that heap and help it of your telecommunicated questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and beastly, bounteous bonifications. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, true believers, because it's all coming up faster than you're having your leaves and composting them too, right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I am your host, and coming up later in the show, we will talk about the ethics of using fall leaves. You didn't know that there were any, did you? Well, some people say to let them lie, lay, whatever, where they fall. And gardeners like you and I often depend on shredding at least some of those fall leaves to make compost and mulch. Is this a serious argument, or was it just an easy question to answer? We'll find out when we get to the question of the week. In the meantime, 888-492-9444. Yeah, I got the holiday giggles. Judy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi there. Hello, Judy. How are you? I'm okay. Very good. Where is Judy okay? Um, a little north of Nashville, Tennessee. Okay, very good. What do you, you live in a little town? Uh, yes, it's Lafayette, Tennessee. Lafayette. Okay. Lafayette. The Northerners would say Lafayette. Oh, okay. Which is what we would say. Um, we are just in the shadow of Lafayette College here. Yes. So, but I won't argue. Let's just say Judy near Nashville. What can we do you for? <laughs> well, last. A um, couple of years, I have lived in an area where I had pawpaw trees. Oh, excellent. And I harvested the pawpaws, and I made pawpaw jelly and all kinds of stuff with it. Um, and we ate them until we just couldn't stand it. Well, <laughs> I moved away, and I took with me a large Tupperware of dried seeds that I had harvested, laid on paper towels until right. they were yeah. dry uh, and stored. And they didn't germinate. No. Right. I knew that. <laughs> so, so I mean, I have even gone as far as to call the Arboretum Society here in Tennessee to find out what I'm doing wrong. Yeah, they probably don't care much about pawpaws. Now, for those... <laughs> For those who don't know, pawpaws are one of the two Native American fruits 
Um, they are small trees, they are understory trees, but they produce fairly large fruits that taste of custard. And there are many pawpaw aficionados around the country. And we had a guy on the show a couple years ago, I wish I could remember his name, uh, but he wrote a book about pawpaws that was very, very entertaining. And I've learned a lot from him over the years. Well, the University of Kentucky has done a study on pawpaws, and they have reams of information. Mm -hmm. They were studying them with the angle to feed the world because the pawpaw is some kind of complete fruit. It is also one of the fruits that travels most poorly. Pawpaws are achieve ripeness and then go from ripeness to like uselessness within a very short period of time. Oh yes. So okay, so let's see. Uh, you said you moved uh, to Tennessee. Yes. Where where were your old trees? I moved north of in Tennessee. My old trees were in Nashville, and I moved oh. up here up north. So it's not far. The, no. Okay. No, it's the same zone. Okay. So here's what you want to do. As soon as you told me you dried the seeds, I realized that you had messed up. Because to propagate a pawpaw from seed, the seeds have to be dead ripe and dead fresh and still moist to the touch. So, uh -oh. okay. So come next year, uh, do you think there's a way you can go back to the trees and harvest some really ripe fruit? You know, even Possibly, ones that yeah. have fallen on the ground. Because that's what they do when they get ripe, right? Yes. So can you go back? Uh, maybe. Trespassing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, or, or just knock on the door and, you know, explain you used to live here and you want to take some pawpaws home. So when you get them home, um, scoop out the seeds, rinse them off, keep them wet. This is the opposite of almost any other propagation by seed. And put them in Ziplocs that are filled with moist perlite. Do you know what perlite is? Mm-hmm. Okay. So perlite is the mine volcanic mineral that pops when they heat it up, and it holds water inside its own structure. So, uh, but it also allows water to throw flow freely in a raised bed. So it's one of those amazing things that drains well, but also holds water. So you take these pawpaw seeds, and while they're still wet, you put them in Ziplocs with, um, with moist perlite. I wouldn't zip the Ziploc fully closed, but um, I would then put them in the refrigerator in an area that stays around 40 degrees and I think the magic number is 100 days. And then you okay. take them out. And now here's the thing. Pawpaws as plants do not transplant well. They have what's called a long taproot. So the best thing you can do is plant, uh, put them in pots and let the sprouts come up in the pots. But then it can be difficult to transplant them. So what I'm going to suggest is you, is you do that. You, you know, plant the seeds in pots and put them outside right away. And, but I would use peat pots or mm -hmm. some other pot that's guaranteed uh, to disintegrate. 
in the ground. That way you can plant them pot and all and you don't have to worry about the pot strangling the root or trying to do any transplanting. If you're, bra okay. if you're brave enough and you have enough seeds, there would be nothing wrong with putting some of these seeds that have gone through this cold treatment directly in the ground where you want them to grow. But a lot of times people like to grow them out in pots for the summer and then plant the, the trees in the fall. Um, I, uh, you should also avoid full sun. Uh, pawpaws are understory plants. They can't take full direct sun. Uh, they will bloom and fruit nicely in, you know, light shade. And when the flowers appear, they're pollinated by flies, and the flowers smell like carrion. So yes, they do. <laughs> most, you know, some farmers claim that they will, they will hang uh, dead chickens in their trees to attract the flies, to pollinate them. Um, the Martha Stewart way would be to take a little artist paintbrush and go from flower to flower and do hand pollinating, especially between uh, two different trees. Because if, if, the tr if the trees that you took the original seeds from were doing well in producing fruit, it meant that they were two different varieties. So when you go back, ideally you would collect fruit from different trees. Well, I did not realize that you had to have two trees. Yes, yes, you need two different varieties. And, and a, a lot of times... I just had one for a while. I lived there 14 years. Yeah? I just had one tree for a while. And it bloomed and fruited. Yes. Did you hand pollinate it? No. Okay. I found out that the guy across the road had a volunteer one. There you go. And it... Um, but we didn't know. I didn't know it was there. He didn't know it was there. Right. It was in the middle of his bamboo forest. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, that's great, though. That was your pollinator plant. So um, I don't know if you can get into the forest or whatever. But at least to get started, that's what you do. You collect dead, ripe fruit. You keep the seeds moist. You chill them for a little over three months. Then you pot them up, and then you plant them. Okay. So, so this, this bucket of dried seed that I have is completely useless? Completely useless unless you got chickens. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's what gardening is all about, Judy. Its success is built on stacks and stacks of failure, but especially epic failures. That's, that's, that was a that's the road to heaven for gardeners. Well, that was a doozy. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, I had them all over the house on paper. I'll bet you they did. Everywhere. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, it's a unique decorating style. I'm sure your neighbors and friends appreciated. Oh, they didn't like the trees either. Oh yeah. Well, they're they're not ornamental. Let's put it that way. But if you love the fruit, yeah, it's it's fabulous. Now it was in a it was in a, a upscale neighborhood. And <laughs> the trees are bent over. They yeah. Were, they were underneath. Um, of a big cedar tree, mm -hmm. and they the neighbors kept going. You know, when are you gonna cut that ugly bush down? And they like, tell them never. <laughs> it's a valuable Native American fruit. Yeah, look at the uh, research that the University of Kentucky has done on pawpaws. It is incredible. There are several universities around the country, especially in that island on the map where pawpaws grow well, that are 
interested in the trees. And um, even experts sometimes have trouble propagating them, but um, I'm pretty, um, pretty certain of the information I just gave you. I'm fabulous. I am very excited. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck, Judy. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everybody out there that the branches of normally discarded cut Christmas trees make a wonderful springy mulch for winter crops like pansies and garlic. Protection without problems. But don't go looking for your pruners just yet because we'll be right back with ethical issues and more of your ethical phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to an encore presentation of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I'm holiday snoozing Mike McGrath, and you're listening to an encore presentation of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and TV at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. An encore performance, because we're all out on vacation, brought to you by Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am still your host, Mike McGrath, and we will be talking about what to do with your fallen leaves. You may have thought it was a can of corn, but there is some controversy involved. We'll get to it when we get to the question of the week. In the meantime, give us a buzz, 888-492-9444. Wayne, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you so much for being had, Wayne. Where are you, man? Um, in the middle of Montana with snow on the ground, and it's actually snowing right now and icy out. Billings, Montana. Oh, wow, yeah, you get a lot of snow. Now, do you like it? Are you a skier, a winter sports guy? Uh, you know, it used to be. You get a little, little older and a little bit busy now. But, uh, um, you know, to, to survive the winter in Montana, um, I start gardens in our basement. I, it's in my manscape. Oh, okay. What are you growing? Um, all kinds of leaf lettuce and kale and arugula and some flowers. And it's a contest between compost, plants growing in, in fresh homemade compost, Plus uh, hydroponics. Oh, okay. Um, wow. What do you first? What are you using for lighting? For a budget? Lighting, light. You know, like artificial sun. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, I have a couple of different kinds of lights down there. One I got off the internet that's just a round bulb that has a, a full spectrum on it. Right. Another one is LED lights in a little square box with all the nice colors. Right. And then I went and bought one real fancy, expensive one just to test different lights. Excellent, excellent. Um, and how are your results so far? <laughs> Actually, I had to drag my wife down in the it's in the basement in in my man's cave. I said. Do you know these these KLEs are as big as my hand now? And just a few days ago, um, they weren't. So that the roots are finally actively in the water where the plants just explode. But interesting enough is there's a cup system down there. I call it window food. It's half compost, half hydroponic solution underneath the uh, compost in the second cup. Huh. So the plants get started growing in the compost, and then their roots get down to the hydroponic area. That's right. I poke a hole in the bottom, big holes in the bottom of the of the first cup, and then the second cup has a solution in it. And it seems like once those roots hit that solution, um, the plant explodes. Oh, that's interesting. This is yeah. um, yeah. I, obviously I know of complete hydroponic systems. I know of indoor growing systems that only use soil and compost. Um, but you're making a hybrid here. That's exactly right. Yeah, and uh, I'm having fun. I call it window food because I have some just growing in the window to to see how our southern lights here that shine in our house, you know, do. do. So yeah, we can eat most of the winter, um, some leaves. But uh, uh, aren't you getting very short hours of daylight right now? Yes, we, we are. We're down to, oh, I think we're, we're under about 12 now, so we're down to about 11 or something like that. It'll get a little bit shorter. It comes up at 6 and goes down at about 4, and, you know, just, what is it, December 21st, the shortest day? Uh, it's 22nd, I believe. That, uh, that doesn't <laughs> sound that different than um, Pennsylvania. I guess you got to go up... Uh, a lot more north to get the crazy hours of day. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, go to Canada. So, are you just bragging? Is there some? Is there something we can do for you? You, you know, uh, um, I, I'm a pusher of compost. I have been for the last 11 years. A little background is uh, um, Farmer to Farmer has a program to send people uh, with skills overseas to help struggling people in third world countries. Right. And I've made 21 trips to 10 different countries now over the last 11 years. That's amazing. Um, where have yeah. you been? Um, mostly Africa, mm -hmm. uh, six different countries in Africa, but then some of the tropics like Jamaica and Guatemala and Nicaragua and Mexico and, and you know, you know the, the Africans. One, one trip was... Um, Five months in Africa, mostly in Rwanda. Mm, that's uh, that could be dicey. Yeah, uh, we love Rwanda. The the one country had a little trouble was was Ethiopia, but uh, it it it's okay. African people uh, are an amazing bunch of farmers that live without money. And uh, our very first trip to South Africa, we fell flat on our face. We're unsuccessful because we brought modern ideas that cost money. Right. And when I say they don't have money, th some of the villages do not even generate garbage. Well, you know, it's funny that you talk about this. I just gave a talk to an international women's group about uh, a book that I wrote with Bob Rodale 
in 1990 called Save Three Lives, and it was about famine prevention in the third world. And Bob had exactly the same tack. He said, you can't bring farm machines over here. You can't expect them uh, to try to make this into Iowa. But if you're careful enough and you go back in their history, you will find that they had methods of water harvesting and eating wild plants and having an endless supply of firewood, which, as you know, is, is one of the huge causes of de soil degradation over there, cutting down too many trees. But um, there are many trees that regrow, so you can actually harvest them. And Bob and I did this uh, book that was mostly about these solutions. And they're all small scale. The people don't have to buy anything. You just teach them how to harvest the little rainwater that comes down. You know, maybe you set up a nursery um, to grow these leguminous trees for them that provide food, and fodder for any animals they may have, firewood, and they grow back again. You can cut them um, constantly without harming them. Right, right. That's, that's great. We see people, um, especially children, packing um, just sticks because everybody seems to do the same method of uh, cooking, and that's usually indoors or in a little shed behind their mud hut um, with sticks and three rocks and a pot. Mm -hmm. and, and it's always always about the same. But I have another thing that, that I'm really trying to push off to help everybody, and it's, it's connected to our, our global climate uh, changes going on, too, and I call it naked land no more. <laughs> I, I want them to quit burning everything they, they have in their fields, especially their croplands, and they burn it for unusual reasons, like one African told me in that in, – um, Tanzania, if you don't clean your fields really, really clean, your neighbors will call you lazy. Huh. Yeah, well, there are some Super. cultural issues to deal with, that's for sure. Yeah, so I come up with something that really works because Farmer to Farmer sends us over there, even won an award for all this stuff. Uh, uh, I had to go to D.C. and get an award for a volunteer of the year. But anyway, Good for um, I taught them, um, don't burn Money. Those three words uh, seem to resonate in them, and uh, I would take out their native money, the local money, mm -hmm. and light a match. <gasps> and here's this white guy is going to go burn some of their money. And mm -hmm. I said, every time you guys burn these fields or this organic, you know, dry vegetation here, you're burning money because I can take that and turn it into compost, which I can turn it into money. And, and they caught on right away. And even my last trip in Zambia for a month, at least last August, um, somebody went over there, and there were two ladies that had went to my class walking down the road, and some farmer was about ready to burn his big old cornfield, all the stalks and stuff. And they went over and chewed him out and said, don't burn money, and he quit. Excellent. Excellent. Um, congratulations. Thank you. One of the things I learned writing the book with Bob Rodale was that every time something like that happens, when a forest is clear cut or when crop residues are burned, that helps the desert move in that much closer. Exactly. Whereby if something is kept growing and you can enlarge the area of the growing, 
it actually pushes the desert back. It can make the desert recede. So anything, yeah, it's all, anything. It's all about the water, the water cycle. In fact, one of the other ways to, to teach the people there, because th this is um, pretty rural, primitive people. I don't call them poor anymore at all. They know how to live without. I'd rather use those terms because they just they live as they did a thousand years ago in, in some of the very rural communities, and you would understand that. But anyway, um, to demonstrate this, we would uh, scratch the ground and and clear it off in a little square area, and pour like 12 liters of water on there. Do another one where we chop down deep in the ground, pour water in there, and another one chopped down deep and then covered. I don't like the chopping down, but anyway, uh, it's covered with uh, maybe six inches of uh, dry organic matter, yep. uh, um, the mulch, the grass, whatever we can find, leaves, and uh, pour water on that and come back the next day, and the one covered is still very wet. Yep. The one that was bare, chopped, it's got a little moisture, but the one that was just what I call naked land, Africans call it naked land, the water's all gone yes. in one day. What what Bob called that was creating artificial springs. And oh. it's a tactic where it takes it a little bit further than you. But you've seen these handheld uh, tools where you tamp down ground. Well, it turns out in these tropical soils, if you tamp it down good and hard, water will run off of that. And you, yep. you make a little ditch, a very tiny little ditch, and you tamp down all around it, and then you arrange for these little ditches to bring to an area that, yes, you have dug out, and you've really pounded the ground underneath nice and hard, and then you divert all this water that would be lost to the sand into this artificial well, this artificial spring, and as you say, it's important to put uh, material on top to prevent evaporation, um, but all of that water gets saved for use. Oh, yeah. It's, it's kind of like catching rainwater, but it's on the ground and a permaculture thing. Exactly. They're one of the most amazing stories. Uh, two women uh, workers over there were testifying before Congress, and they came up with a plan whereby they tamped down the ground around a big open area that had uh, an area below it, like six feet lower. It was on a little bit of a cliff. And they tamped down all the area on the cliff and on the sides, and they put a barrel into the ground. And then oh. in, in another area, they put a barrel in the ground, but they didn't tamp down any, any sand around it they got, that night, they got a tenth of an inch of rain. They harvested 25 gallons of water. Oh, marvelous, marvelous, yeah. It's so, like they, they tin-roofed the soil to, and then guided it into a reserve uh, storage area. And it's enough to keep a family going with livestock in areas that get four to six inches of rain a year. Oh, wow. Because yeah. you don't waste any. So, Wayne, it sounds like you're doing great. But I would urge you, I think you would love to read the book. It's called Save Three Lives. Well, it, what was that, day three? Save Three Lives, because we wanted to tell people you're not going to save the world, 
but how great would it be to save one life, to save two lives, to save three lives by, by endorsing these simple ideas? It was published by the Sierra Club in mm, okay. 1990. You can find used copies available online, and the primary author is Robert Rodale, with me as the secondary. Yeah, which I, I met once down in Albuquerque, shook his hand. Yeah, right. he was one of the smartest guys I ever knew. Yeah, yeah, that would be beautiful. Yeah, um, we have a, um, uh, put together a book, because the, the simplicity of this, it's dirt simple, is you make compost out of you know, the wasted rubbish laying around anywhere in the world mm -hmm. and put it on top of your poor soil and grow in that. Now, is this a real book or a pamphlet you give out? Yeah, you know, it's it's a book called Gardening for Life, No Money Required. You have to have the no money required to find it. It's on Amazon, and it's after 11 years of doing this, I put all our ideas together with the African photos, that's highly illustrated, mm -hmm. of people making compost and growing food and, and how a, we did the square foot garden thing. And, mm -hmm. and I, I ran into a problem with square foot. A, a fellow tapped me on the shoulder and said, Mr. Wayne, I have 10 children. I can eat that small garden in one day. Yeah. And I thought, oh, he's right. So I came home, and I carbon-loaded some compost with some other organic wasted material, and I grew 50 carrots in a square foot. That's and amazing. I did the, I did the math on a, on a four-foot by eight-foot box. Mm -hmm. His 10 children had to eat 21 carrots a day for a week. Oh, well, how terrible. All right, listen, Wayne, we got to go, but this is okay. a, um, a a remarkable story. Um, stay on the line. Our producers will make sure they have all the information on the book, and we'll put it up when this segment airs. Thank you very much. Well, thank Mike. you, sir, and thank you for the good work you're doing. Yes. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everyone that you are listening to an encore presentation of You Bet Your Garden so that the crew and I can take that long winter's nap. We'll be back with a brand new show next week. But don't you go snoozing just yet because we'll be right back now to discuss the ethics of harvesting fall leaves and take more of your fallen phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. 
I'm holiday snoozing Mike McGrath, and you're listening to an encore presentation of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and TV at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Welcome back to an encore presentation of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your rerun host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, a philosophical, a phil, uh, uh, an intelligent look at what you should do with your leaves. All right. But before that, intelligent phone calls dialed to nobody dials anymore. Um, anyway, 888-492-9444. Frank, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you very much for taking the call. Well, thank you for making it, Frank. How are you, man? I'm very good. And where is Frank very good? Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Just across the bridge from Philadelphia. Correct. All right. What can we do for Frank in the Garden State? Well, I, at, just before Thanksgiving, uh, bought and set up a worm bin. Mm-hmm. And there was plenty of information online about how you got the worm bid started. And there was information also about what the end product would look like. But going from A to Z, I could, really couldn't find a lot about how you deal with the day-to-day -day stuff. And I've been doing it now for about seven weeks. And as I look at uh, the bin when I go in there and dig around, Things just aren't looking like the end product, so I'm wondering if I'm doing something wrong and had a number of questions about the process once you get started. Okay, do you have a worm bin that has multiple levels, trays that stack on top of each other, or are you, like, using a Rubbermaid bin or something? Uh, multiple trays. Oh, okay. Um, that should work just fine. How many trays do you have? Two. Oh, is that all it came with? Yes, there's a, a collection, a, you know, a liquid collection bin below. Yes, yeah, so I understand that. Yeah, the worm tea. Right. So uh, it should be very simple. Um, I have the same uh, device called the worm tower. And what you do is you collect your kitchen waste, um, not cooked food, not leftovers, but uh, raw waste, like the broccoli cores and the apple cores and the browned out lettuce leaves and stuff like that, and coffee filters, coffee, ground coffee, used coffee, spent coffee in the filters. The worms love that. So you, you hold on to that stuff. You collect it until you got enough to cover the tray. And then you simply shred up black and white newspaper until you cover all the kitchen waste in there. Now, presumably, at some point during this process, you got worms to introduce into the bin. So you get your worms in there, and then your goal is to make this nice and moist. They need a uh, moist environment. So you get some clean water, preferably not city tap water, and you pour it gently over top of the shredded newspaper. And it's going to come out the bottom where they got the spigot for collecting the worm tea. And when it does come out the bottom, just keep re-pouring that worm tea over top of the shredded newspaper. 
until you think you've got things at stasis. You don't want it to be too sloppy. You don't want it to be too wet, but you never want to let it dry out. Then when you've collected uh, enough, enough garbage, enough waste, after that, you put the second tray on top, layer the bottom of that with garbage, and then shred up more black and white newspaper, put that on top and moisten it up. Now, I've got four trays on mine. So the nice advantage to having the extra trays is by the time I'm on my last tray filled with garbage, the first tray down on the bottom is done. It's completely worm castings. Well, that's, that's really one of the questions I had is how long does it take to go from garbage? Because what I did was I, put, I did a little slightly differently than you did, but same idea. Shredded newspaper and some shredded cardboard as a base, put the worms in there and then the garbage on top, and then shredded newspaper, some shredded leaves, and, and uh, on top of that. Oh, okay. So you have something blocking the entry to the uh, tray. Oh, no. The worms are getting up and down through it. Cause oh, okay. It's, it's, okay. Because they're, they're down in that collection tray. There's a, um, And that's one of the things that really started making me question it. Well, yeah, they escape sometimes. They get down into the into the tray, but all you do is you pick a nice day where you can take it outside and then you pour them back into one of the layers. Oh, yeah, but it, but the, on the the screen above the uh, liquid collection area, yes. the screen above it, there's it looks like castings there, but they are sopping wet. And yeah, yeah, because they're getting the most moisture. Um, when you are done, when you have a tray that's completely finished, you have a couple of options. You can take that tray and you can dump it into a working compost pile to really accelerate the compost and supercharge it, or you can leave it sit out in a cool, dry area, maybe even underneath a ceiling fan with a bunch of newspaper underneath it, and then slowly dry the castings out, and then they'll look like the stuff in the, in the little bags at the garden centers that say worm castings. Okay, so the fact that everything's looking very wet in there now is not bad as long as the worms are moving around and, and being active. If you if you are getting too much worm tea out of the bottom, it would be good if you could pour that, if you have an outdoor compost pile poured in that. Um, is, how, how is it smelling? How is it doing? Oh, it, the, the worm tea is very ripe. Is it supposed to be? It is when you first put the fresh garbage in, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, well, it is. Okay. Well, if it's too ripe to use indoors, uh, I just store it someplace and then use it on outdoor plants or, again, pour it into a compost pile. But that's a sign that you're over-moistening. And get that no more cardboard in there. That's totally unnecessary. I know sometimes the instructions give you these 18 things. You're supposed to give them grit and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, Garbage, shredded newspaper, water, that's all my worms get. I've been doing this for about 12 years now. I get better at it every year. These, these creatures are really the best way to get rid of your, reprocess your kitchen waste. And um, you will find that they work faster in the summertime than they do in the winter. Okay, so about how long is it that it takes for to go from fresh garbage to finished product uh eyes eyes and ears uh or nose you'll see you'll see uh but two to me two trays is not enough to keep going uh with 
with my system, typically by the time I put the fourth tray on top, the bottom tray is completely finished. Okay. So fill it up and then just put another tray on top and just let it go. Correct. All the new trays always go on the top because the worms like to climb up. Okay. Well, All right, man. Helpful. Very good. Yeah, and be patient. You're on, you've only been doing this a little while. You will get good at it. It's super easy. And these worm castings are dynamite for your plants. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. cats and kittens it is time for the question of the week which we're calling where should you leave your leaves Teresa in Stillwater Oklahoma writes I know you love fall leaves so do I however I'd like to suggest that you update your information on leaves leaves left alone provide habitat and food for creatures that nourish birds butterflies lightning bugs and numerous other species not to mention nourishing the earth itself. Now, these species are already under stress from changes in the climate, which may even cause some to die off. So we really need to be cognizant of and respectful towards these we ones. Thank you for your consideration. P.S. I collect leaves from neighborhoods where people don't understand this concept. The leaves are pre-bagged, so they're not difficult to collect. I just have to pull the odd bit of trash out of them. Well, Teresa raises a couple of really good points, so let's review my philosophy on leaves with the caveat that not everyone can do exactly as I do. That's because my house is surrounded by trees, and most of the land around us is heavily wooded with a stream running through it. So I can have my leaves and... and well, not eat them, too. That would be too weird even for me. But thanks to my landscape, I can leave some and harvest the rest. If you could see the view from my office window, where I saw two beautiful fox playing like puppies in the woods last week, you'd see that the area to the left of the house, on the other side of our stream, and beyond the fenced-in backyard, fenced in to try and contain the Great Pyrenees we rescue, is covered several inches deep in years' worth of leaves. I have never harvested leaves from these wild areas with the same intentions as Teresa, to leave wild areas wild, somewhat for the benefit of any creatures that prefer these kind of leafy habitats, but mostly for the health of the trees that derive nutrition from those leaves when they eventually break down but I do try and suck up every leaf that falls around the house and garden for several reasons. The first is common sense. As everyone who has driven on a wet leaf-covered road knows all too well, whole wet leaves defy the very concept of traction. Winter in the north is treacherous enough for slip and fall risk. Leaving my patio covered with wet leaves would probably cancel my insurance policy if not cancel me personally. And leaving whole leaves on my garden beds would smother the soil, encourage mold, possibly kill my fall-planted garlic, and prevent many of my spring bulbs from emerging properly, especially the early-blooming minor bulbs, like glory of snow and snowdrops that can come up in January. That last part is especially important 
in winters when snow hits early and stays late, I sometimes miss the window to suck up and shred the leaves over top of where my spring bulbs are sleeping. And the result is always a disaster, a frantic effort to rescue the emerging plants from this frozen tarp of death that only results in my raking up more bulbs than leaves. Now, my back went out this fall, it's much better now, thank you, in the middle of my shredding. And I know that some spring bulb locations are still covered by matted down wet and or frozen leaves. So that's number one on my to-do list, to try and free those bulbs up on the next nice day before the early ones start to emerge. Now, some of those shredded leaves will go into my compost piles. Some will be saved in giant trash cans for garden mulching in the spring. And many will be dumped right back down where they were after being shredded. Whereby whole leaves mat down and smother the soil, shredded leaves allow air and water through. And plants like spring bulbs, garlic, peonies, and hosta that might otherwise be smothered by whole leaves easily push through the light, loose mulch of shredded leaves. Okay, okay, hostas could probably push through sheet metal. Just wanted to see if you were paying attention out there. Same procedure with my garden beds. I suck up the whole leaves and then empty the collection bag of shredded leaves right back on top of the beds to prevent weeds, erosion, and having to carry the bag back to my compost piles. Lawns. It is critical to get every whole leaf off of your lawn. Early in the season, it's fine to use your lawnmower to mulch the leaves back into the grass, but do not attempt this if the ground is frozen. Mowing frozen grass will rip the grass to shreds. It's much better at this point to suck the leaves up with a leaf blower set on reverse and then empty the bag into your compost piles or, again, save them for garden mulch next spring. And finally, we get to trash picking, or as I like to call it, rescuing SPBs. Back when I was younger, I would troll the streets of nearby Emmaus looking for SPBs put out at the curb. If they were filled with leaves alone, I would store them in their bags for shredding in the spring. But if they were a combination of leaves and grass clippings, I would just dump them in the woods. Never trust clippings from an unknown lawn. If that lawn was treated with commercial herbicides, the clippings and any compost made from them could be deadly to non-grass plants. Well, that sure was an interesting and somewhat philosophical look at leaves, now wasn't it? Luckily for you, you can read all of this info over at your leisure or your leisure, because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you'll always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. I'm Batman. Yikes, my producer is threatening to take a crudgel to my compost if I don't get out of this studio. Did I write that? We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9400. 
44. How many people out there know what a crudgel is? Come on. Or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse. Teaming Tursar Garden Shore at YBYG at WLVT.org. We don't care if you include your location or not, but if you don't, we will respond with spam. You'll find all of our contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, hundreds of them, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of all the shows we've done here, and links to our internationally renowned podcast. It's all at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when a hot air balloon escaped from the Iowa State Fair with him inside. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And yes, I do get paid for this. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Teresa Radke. Thanks for the t-shirt for Christmas. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen, who didn't get me anything. Our video editor is Judicious Jake Boyer. Neither did he. Our harassed and harried director is Javier Diaz. Zach the Taquisneski is around here. Wait a minute. He's not around here somewhere. Neither am I or the other usual gang of idiots. It's hungover holiday time, cats and kittens. Our beloved and beleaguered CEO, Tim Fallon, who is not our executive producer, is dodging reports about his New Year's Eve performance as a Middle Eastern belly dancer. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, reminding you that in the words of Jimmy Kimmel, your grandparents are exactly the same as your gym. You visit them both twice a year. But I'll see you again next week. Yeah, 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 yeah.